0: Lord, you're beautiful, and you are here among us. You are at work. Lord, we don't have to go looking for you. You've come looking for us. Give us the grace to say yes to you, to receive you, and to celebrate your goodness together. We pray in your name, King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, friends. Most of you know that I have four little boys. <laughs> it's already funny. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, th- those guys, especially the younger ones, they think about their birthdays all the time. And and really, more specifically, they think about their birthday parties. So, so for them, birthday is like the sun, and the rest of the year is just caught in its gravitational pull, and it just goes around. And I'm not kidding when I say that I, I really don't think there's a day that goes by when someone in my home doesn't come to me and say, this is what I want to do at my birthday party, yes. and, it, and it's always something a little bit different, um, so, so it's a lot of fun, but it's just incredible to me the way that celebration captures their imagination and holds on to it all year long. Now, as adults, uh, we grow up, and our lives become more about um, paying bills and being on time and doing dishes, and so celebration becomes something that we would say is good, we like it, but honestly, sometimes it feels like just more work to put it on, and it's kind of in that category of things that aren't necessary, maybe a little frivolous, and so it just takes a smaller, smaller place in our lives, and besides, uh, as, as good uh, Americans in the Protestant tradition, we don't want to make a fuss, <laughs> life's serious business, and we're going to get on with it in serious ways. So so I think it's interesting and maybe a little bit surprising uh, if we pay attention to what the Scripture said today when they were read um, of of Scripture from Leviticus of all places, right? Um, When we read uh, the law of God here, it gives us a little more maybe than we bargained for. We tend to imagine that when God gave the law to Israel, he was giving them a list of rules, what to do, what's allowed, and what's not allowed. True enough, it does include that. But it's so much more than that. The law, in the law, God was giving Israel a way of life, a culture, literally a set of practices, ways to live, that were all aimed in the same direction. They were aimed at uh, Israel remembering what it meant to be God's people, remembering that they were God's people. And these were practices that were set up to help them actually live in right relationship with God and to help them show the world who God is. To help them uh, represent God and reveal God in all of his goodness to the world. This was Israel's mission, and the law's job was to help them do that work. Um, uh, <laughs> so, it's incredible to me in many ways that central to this law was in fact a series of, par- a series of celebrations a series, a cycle, if you will, of feast, starting off uh, with small, frequent feasts and moving out in concentric circles to larger and more infrequent celebrations. So just look at what's in here. Uh, Look at what's in the scripture in in Leviticus chapter 23. Uh, It begins with this this command uh, to keep a Sabbath, right? We've been talking about that all the way through Lent. Well, today we're talking specifically about Sabbath feasting, and in a sense that applies to everything in this chapter. But at its, at, its, at its nearest, the people were called one day a week to keep a Sabbath to the Lord on the seventh day, a feast to the Lord. And it's really interesting to think that for Israel, the presence of the Sabbath was actually what defined time for them. It's what kept one day from being just like another. So you're always finding yourself in reference to the Sabbath day. It's coming in three days or it was four days ago. Kind of like my kids with the birthday parties. Um, but it didn't stop there. In addition to the weekly feast, the weekly celebration, uh, God gave Israel in this chapter uh, six major feasts that ran all the way through the year. So if you're keeping all those celebrations, you're spending a lot of time in the year uh, Sabbathing and celebrating. Uh, But it goes beyond that too, to another level, because not only were you supposed to work six days and rest the seventh day, you're supposed to work six years and rest a seventh year in ancient Israel. So they had a Sabbath year when they were actually supposed to set aside their work, which is pretty shocking to us. But then it goes even further. So after every seventh seven year, uh, every 49 years, you have that Sabbath year where you rest. But then there's another year called the year of Jubilee, right after on the 50th year, where you rest again. But it's also a year for um, freeing slaves, returning land to its original owners. It's, it's, a, it's a year of liberation and celebration for the whole people, for the whole social system of Israel. It's like a super Sabbath, an ultimate Sabbath. And so for an ancient Israelite living through this, their whole life would be oriented uh, by these smaller and greater celebrations that would run throughout their life. Now, when we read something like that today, uh, it may be interesting to us, but our tendency is to say, well, that's really different (laughs) uh, than the way we live. Uh, But look, this is the Old Testament law. Um, I'm under grace. I'm not under the law, so this doesn't really apply to me. And furthermore, we're not ancient Israel, so how would we even begin to think about this? So we kind of just notice it, notice it, notice it as interesting, and then move along uh, with our lives. But to say uh, that we don't have to do this misses the point. It, it, it totally misses the point because um, if we believe that God is all wise and all good, and if it's true that he made something like this so significant for his people when he organized their lives for them, then shouldn't we at least be a little bit curious as to whether or not there is a good gift for us here as well? Not something that we have to do, not some new commandment that we're in trouble if we don't follow, but some blessing that we would be sorry to miss. Maybe like a kid at a party who sees someone else getting a gift and saying like, is there one for me too? Can I get one of those? Right? Right. So the question is, is there something good here for us, too, even though it's not law for us? Besides which, we can say that celebration is actually a significant part of the New Testament, too. I mean, Jesus organizes his own ministry around celebration. We heard in the gospel that in spite of all the urgency of Jesus's ministry of proclaiming and preaching truth, of healing the sick, that he chooses to begin his public ministry by turning water into wine at a wedding celebration, right? At a feast. And then he concludes his ministry before going to the cross uh, by keeping uh, the Passover celebration, the Passover feast with his disciples. He begins and ends by feasting. Uh, There's a lot more that I could say about that, but for our purposes today, really all I want to do is to say, um, could it be that there is some blessing, something to learn in this discipline of celebration, in this Sabbath feasting. Is there something for us? And I want to argue, obviously, that I think, yes, there is. Um, because, number one, of the way that feasting teaches us, of the way that celebrating teaches us, and also for, because of what it teaches us. So I'm going to talk about how it teaches us a little bit, and then what it teaches us a bit more. So how does it teach us? How does feasting teach us? How does celebrating teach us? Well, let's go back to that kid's birthday party, okay? So, if we're throwing a birthday party for a kid, we're not thinking, I wanna teach this kid something. We're not trying to teach them a lesson. But we are, if we really think about it, trying to communicate something to them. We actually are wanting them to know something. We're wanting them to learn something, in a way. Everything that we do in the birthday party, the balloons, the cake, the presents, the song, It's all meant to say the same thing. You're precious to us. We delight in you. You're loved. And you could write that down in a note. You could say it to the kid, and it would be great to do those things. We should do those things. But there's something about all that stuff, the balloons and the songs and the cake, all saying that together to the kid, that make that message go down deep into the kid's bones in a way that just saying it wouldn't. Uh, the, the, in a kind of knowledge that's embodied, right? And I think that's why my kids are thinking about their birthday all year long, right? Because it's a moment where they really are able to receive that message that you are precious, you are loved. And so they bask in the light of that truth all year long. We're always saying it, but there's something about that celebration that really drives the truth home. Well, celebration was given to Israel for the same reason, because it has the power An embodied act to communicate a truth that doesn't just stick in our brains, but that gets down into our bodies, into our lives, in the way that we live. So that's how it teaches us. Celebrating teaches us in a way that's embodied, that comes down into our hearts, into our guts, into our bones. But what does it teach us? What does celebrating teach us? I want to argue it teaches us three things. It teaches a lot more than three things, but two seems like not enough and four seems like too many. So I'm gonna tell you three things that I think it teaches us. And it's, it's nice and neat because it teaches us something beautiful about God, about ourselves, and about the world. Celebration teaches us about God. It teaches us that God can be trusted. It teaches us that God can be trusted. The oldest lie of all is that God can't be trusted. In the garden, when Satan speaks to Adam and Eve, and they believe him. Essentially, what they're believing is the lie that God either doesn't know what's good for them, or he doesn't want what's good for them. So they'd better take taking care of themselves into their own hands, because I'm the only person ultimately that I can trust to see to my good. I don't, I can't trust God. Maybe I can trust him some, but not all the way. I'm going to hedge on that a little bit. I can't really trust him. And we've been believing that same lie ever since, like every day, right? Living out of that lie every day. So we need to learn to trust God. It's easy to say, trust God. It's easy to say, I do trust God. But it's much harder to actually trust Him with real things in our lives, things that matter, things that count. Imagine that you're an Israelite a couple, few thousand years ago, and it's time to keep the Sabbath year. And you grow all of the food that you eat, or at least your neighbors do. Like, together, you, this, is, this is the food that there is. And you have agreed, in response to God's call, not to grow anything this year. It'd be terrifying, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be a really, really scary thing to do? But what if uh, your parents had done that their entire lives? And their parents, and your great-grandparents... And their parents before them. And you'd been doing it, your whole, your, they were doing it when you were growing up, and you've done it a few times, right? The Sabbath year isn't terrifying anymore, because you've seen God come through again and again. You've learned in your bones by trusting Him with something real over and over again that you can actually trust Him. It's that kind of embodied knowing, that kind of birthday party knowing uh, that we can't get just by saying it. We learn to trust God by actually trusting Him with real stuff. So, celebrating is an opportunity to do that. Sabbath is an opportunity to do that. Now, it's true that just stopping our work is a way of putting trust in God's hands. and saying, I'm not going to manage things today. I'm not going to be in control. You're in control, right? Every Sabbath is an opportunity to do that. You don't have to have celebrating for that to be true. But when you add celebrating to it, I think it actually increases the way that it teaches us to trust God. And it's a little bit hard to put into words why, but I'm going to try Um, So it's taught us that we can trust God, but it also, following a command that isn't productive, that's not about making something or doing something, helps us learn to see all of God's commands in a different way. The command to feast is really a command to enjoy and be enjoyed. It's not instrumental to any other end. Now, most of the things that God calls us to do, uh, forgiving, loving our enemies, repenting of our sins, serving the least... Those things are hard, and there's a tendency for us to believe deep in ourselves, along with not trusting God, that we're doing all those things to earn our place with Him, to earn His love, and to earn His rewards. Kind of a quid pro quo. If I do what you like, you'll do nice things for me, and I'll get what I want. That's kind of how we operate. But it's completely upside down. The truth of the gospel isn't that uh, if we do good things, God will love us. It's that God loves us. He's made us His very children— And that's why we go and live out of that love and go do good things, because those are the things that reflect God's work in our lives, right? Um, We live out of our identity as God's children. That's why we do the good ethical things. We don't do the good right things that Scripture commands to earn our place with Him. So I think there's something to um, obeying the command to celebrate, where the whole point is to enjoy God and be enjoyed by Him and to enjoy each other, that points us in the right direction and helps us to see that all these other works that God calls us to do are not earning anything, but are actually outgrowths of God's goodness in our life. This is, these are good things that God invites us to do, just like the celebrating that we're doing now. Does that make sense? <clears throat> so, celebrating teaches us that God can be trusted, that He's trustworthy and that He's good, good enough to trust. And the flip side of that is kind of what I've already been naming and it's, that's that it teaches us something about ourselves that we are not slaves that we're not servants that God has made us his own children right that we're not earning our place with him but that he loves us so we're not so so it's sort of like in the parable of the prodigal son both the son who ran off and lived wildly and the son that stayed home and worked believe the same lie they both believe that they were that they were earning or had to earn their place with the father but the dad says Boys, no. I love you. You're my children. Whether you messed up or have done all the right things, you were always my children. You're invited to come in and receive my love. So we don't want to be like the big brother who can't go to the party because we think we've been earning. Uh, we need to be able to stop our earning and just receive God's love. This is the work of celebration, the discipline of feasting unto the Lord. So it teaches us, feasting teaches us about God, that we can trust Him, and about ourselves, that we're children, not slaves, beloved of God. It also teaches us about the world. It's our tendency to believe one of two lies about the world. Either that the world is the only place where there's any real help or joy available to us, so we better get it have however we can and hold on to it as long as we can. Or the opposite, that um, there's nothing good here for us, and so we should ignore the world, forget about it, and uh, only think about the life to come. Well, the truth is, God made a good creation. He made a good world and He loves it, but it's fallen and broken. But He is responding to that. Christ has come. He will make all things new, but His kingdom is already breaking into the world in small ways. Now, it won't be complete until the second coming of Christ, but even now it's visible and it should be most visible in the church, in the people of God. We see the kingdom of God breaking in. So... When the people of God celebrate, if we are to be a people of celebration, of feasting, if Israel was supposed to be, and if we're supposed to be, it's not because everything's okay. We're not supposed to celebrate because everything's great. We're supposed to celebrate because we believe that it will be. Because by faith, we trust that Christ will make all things new, and that work has already begun in us. We celebrate like Paul and Silas with their feet in chains, sitting in prison, because we see what's coming. Not because of the situation as we know it right now. So celebration for the people of God is a prophetic act. It is, it is to cry against the darkness, you will not have the last word. Uh, this is a, a cool book that I've mentioned before called Every Moment Holy. It's a, a bunch of prayers that they were they're recently written um, that are for different situations. And they all do a beautiful job of framing things up in a way that reflects God's truth. One of the prayers is for feasting with friends, so it's literally a prayer to read when you get together for a dinner party or something. I'm just going to read a little bit of it to you, because I think it gets what I'm trying to say really, really right. This is what the prayer says. Together joyfully is indeed a serious affair, for feasting and all enjoyments gratefully taken in the Lord are at their heart acts of war, In celebrating this feast, we declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and tears will not have the final word. But the joy of our fellowship and the welcome and comfort of friends, new and old, the celebration of these blessings of food and drink and conversation and laughter are the true evidence of things eternal. They are the first fruits of that great glad joy that is to come and that will be unending. We feast with our eyes on Revelation, the marriage feast of the Lamb. Jesus began and ended his ministry with celebration, with feasting, maybe not celebration exactly, but with feasting uh, with his people. Uh, But his ministry, in part, because it's pointing to our ultimate hope, and that is the marriage feast of the Lamb. That is our identity. That is where we are going, this great celebration when we are united with our Lord and all things are made new. So we're not going to a birthday party. We're going to a wedding. Right, That's the nature of the celebration we've been invited to, and we are the bride of Christ. So we are those who, on the way to the wedding, things are hard. But for the joy set before us, we celebrate. And that celebration is a word to the world that there is hope in the darkness. And we ought to be known as a people of celebration. Now, okay, so in summary, I'm arguing that even though it's not the law, even though we don't have to, there's a blessing and an opportunity in Scripture, an invitation, if you will, to take, uh, to be a people of celebration, a people who keep Sabbath feasts, because it teaches us in our bodies that God can be trusted, that we are His beloved children, and it says to the world and us too that there is hope, that that, that things are going somewhere better if we're willing to go along. But how do we do it? Like, practically, what does this look like? If we're not going to take on exactly the Old Testament system, how do we do it? What does it look like? Our imaginations do need to be renewed on this count because the world has kind of messed our minds up on what celebration can be. I want to name just a few concrete things that we can pull straight out of this Leviticus passage uh, that point to what our celebration and feasting can be like. Not what they have to be like but ways that they agree with God's wisdom and invitation. Okay, the first way that our feasting can agree with God's invitation is that it would be intentional and consistent. In the same way that Israel had a calendar marked down for keeping feasts, we are wise to do the same thing. It's kind of a lot of work to put something like a feast on or a celebration on for the first time, but when it's a part of your calendar, when it's something that happens over and over again, it actually becomes fairly easy. It becomes rest because you're expecting it. It's coming. We feast and and celebrate not just because we feel grateful, but it's a kind of training. We do it regularly over and over again because the more we do it, the more we learn to be grateful, the more we learn to be joyful. It actually builds it into our hearts and lives. And it's an expression of of, of our understanding that this kind of work um, is important, that it's not expendable or something frivolous, to put it on our calendars, to to make it important the same way that we make anything important, whether it's a doctor's appointment or uh, some family event, by planning it and sticking to it, um, this kind of work, this this discipline of celebration is able to do its work in our lives. So that's the first thing, that we would do it intentionally and consistently. Uh, The second is that we would do it in a way that's celebrating something. In our culture, celebration is often associated with, frankly, just release, um, of, of escapism, of getting away from the hard things in our life. If life is overwhelming, if we're afraid and um, don't know how to deal with things, um, uh, you know, celebration can be a way of, um, of numbing out and, um, and getting away. <clears throat> but we're called to the opposite of that. We're called not to numb out, but to fill up, not to escape from the ugliness, but to lean into the truth of who God is and who he says that we are. Our celebrations—they don't have to be complicated or fancy, um, but they're meant to tell a story. Everything in them should be telling a story. In the same way that that, that, at that birthday party, the cake and the ice cream and the song are all telling the same story. They're all telling the story: "We love you. You're precious to us." Right? Like our celebration, everything in them ought to be pointed to that truth: that God loves us and that we are His people. And that we've been invited to share that love with the world. Um, other concrete things, uh, it's clear in, in all of these uh, places in Leviticus that uh, the, the, the celebration, this uh, Sabbath feasting, always does involve stopping our work. It involves, they're all called convocations, that means a gathering of people. So it's something we do together, it's something that we gather to do. It involves breaking bread, which is something we're already pretty good at. <clears throat> It involves using our imaginations in the same way that we would for a birthday party or a Christmas celebration. Again, it doesn't have to be uh, Pinterest perfect, but the point is uh, that we're that we're using the gifts that we have, whether music or art or, or whatever. Our celebrations are an opportunity um, <clears throat> to turn away from I, I, our consumerist culture has given us an imagination for celebration that basically is just we we'll better consume more, you know, buy more, eat more. <clears throat> but but there's uh, <clears throat> This is a call not to, not to consumption, not to greed, but to generosity, to sharing, to giving, to forgiving of all kinds of debts. Indeed, uh, this is a celebration that is essentially practice for the world to come. So if this all still seems pretty vague, it's like, what do you mean? How do you, what are you talking about? How would you do this? Um, <clears throat> there's two really practical things. One is that the Christian church actually does have a calendar of feasts and celebrations, and we're in it. It's kind of funny to talk about this right now because we're at the end of Lent, but we're just about to turn the corner into Holy Week. And we're coming up on Easter, which is the greatest celebration in the Christian year. Um, So there's a huge opportunity, and it's just far enough out to begin to think about that. What does it look like to feast into the Lord uh, in this Easter season as it's coming? And Easter is not just a day, it's actually a whole season, 50 days leading up into Pentecost of opportunity. Uh, to celebrate in the Lord so there's that whole side of things that bigger picture of celebrations that run through the year in the church calendar but there's also that every Sabbath is an opportunity to feast and the cool things friends congratulations you're already doing it you have come today to a feast you've come to a celebration as you come here today you're doing all the things that I've been talking about you've stepped away from your work for a while You've gathered with God's people. We're going to break bread together. We're going to use art and beauty and music in ways that all point towards the same story of God's love for us, of His including us as His children, and Him sharing that with the world. So we are feasting as we gather together on any given Sunday to worship. But I want to do two things. I want to name that, number one, to say like we are a people of celebration, but that celebration is not meant to stay here. The Eucharist is good and beautiful, but it's a model for our life. It's a model for our Sabbath keeping, for our feasting, so that when we leave, we take it with us and learn to live out of those same kinds of moves and rhythms to do these same kinds of things in our life in whatever ways we're able. We need new imagination for this work. But it's a beginning to just be able to say uh, that in our culture, that only values productivity, that feasting is not frivolous. That celebration is serious spiritual work. Because when we do it, we're investing in trusting God instead of ourselves. We're building gratitude in a world full of grasping consumption. We're fostering relationships in a world of loneliness. We're testifying to hope in a world full of cynicism. We're remembering that our lives uh, is, is for the world to come, but that that world is breaking in even now. And we're practicing for that world to come. So friends, the invitation today is simple. It's come and feast. Come and enjoy and be enjoyed by your Lord. And as you do, let that joy in you well up and overflow outside of this space into the rest of your life. Consider what it means to take these same kinds of thanksgiving moves and and let them be a part of of your life in bigger ways and broader ways. And in spite of all the darkness and brokenness that persists in our lives and in the world... I just want to read another little section from this prayer. Take joy, friends, as you prepare to come to the table. All will be well. All will be well. Nothing good and right and true will be lost forever. All good things will be restored. Feast and be reminded. Take joy, little flock. Take joy. Let battle be joined. You who are loved by the Father, prepare your hearts and give yourselves wholly to the celebration of joy to the glad company of saints, to the coming comforting fellowship of the Spirit, and to the abiding presence of Christ who is seated among us both as our host and as our honored guest, and still yet as our conquering king. Friends, we have more reason to celebrate than anyone, even in the midst of our trouble, because we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we will be joined with him. So as we rep- prepare for our ultimate destiny at the wedding feast of the Lamb, let us feast together today, with thankful hearts. Jesus, fill our hearts with celebration. Teach us to be a people who give thanks always in ways that reshape our own hearts and that reflect your goodness to the world. We pray it in the power of your spirit. Amen.